Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. We are joined today by Brian Curtis, editor-at-large at The Ringer. If you don't already know Brian, he writes some excellent columns on TheRinger.com, and he hosts The Press Box, which happens to be the podcast with our favorite podcast episode of this past year. So we gushed with Brian a little bit over that particular podcast episode with Wright Thompson, and then we also hit on a wide range of media topics, writing versus podcasting, streaming versus linear, and searching for those water cooler events. We had a ton of fun during this conversation, and if you are in media and aren't yet consuming Brian's work, we heavily encourage you to do so. Now on to our conversation with Brian and our debrief that follows. All right, Brian, we are going to talk broader media. We're going to talk about your specific work, but we wanted to start the conversation on The Ringer specifically, and maybe we can start with you specifically at The Ringer. Your title is editor at large. What does that job actually entail? I was going to ask you guys that because I wake up every morning trying to figure it out. It's actually an old time life glory days of magazines title where they would pick a few people and say, you're the editor at large. So you get to pursue things you think are really interesting. And that's how I choose to interpret it, is that I go after the stories that I want to go after. I do pods that I want to do. I am in charge with going out and finding interesting things and trying to bring them back to the ringer in some form or another. And how holistic is that? Are you managing other teams and sort of directing what content they should be looking at? Or is that very individual in terms of each have license to go and do what interests you? No, the editor part is a purely ceremonial part of the title. I am me and part of Team Press Box, and that's about it. And you do some writing as well. And it's something that I think differentiates The Ringer in that you still put a lot of resources into writing. There's still a lot of focus on what's going on on the website, even though it's been publicly said that the podcasts have driven a lot of the dollars that have come into the business. What drives that prioritization of writing still at The Ringer? Well, I know in my own experience, writing isn't just incredibly satisfying and it's incredibly fun to do. And to me, there's nothing more vulnerable than submitting a piece of writing for somebody else to look at. So then they can tell you very helpfully, I might add, everything that's wrong with it. It's a little different than podcasting. Even if I have a terrible take and my podcast partner, David Shoemaker, goes, eh, there's nothing quite as just grueling as that. But to me, with writing too, there's something just incredibly satisfying about having finished a piece and putting it up and saying, this is mine. 
it's not just what came out of the top of my head, but it's something I fussed over a little bit. It's something I thought about and got it into the best place that I could get it. And I love that. And I'd say the final thing about it too, is that with podcasting so much of the time, we're reacting to things that happen. Oh my gosh, Rupert Murdoch has retired. Oh my gosh, there's some sports media controversy that is burning hot and I must weigh in on. And with writing, a lot of the times you do that, but you're also able to go to people and say, here's something I think is important or fascinating that maybe was not absolutely at the top of your Twitter timeline already. And you can direct people to a different idea, different subject. I think that's really cool too. Is that a conscious strategy in terms of the timely being podcast related and the writing being a little bit longer shelf life? Is there any outright strategy to be doing that? Or is that something that you've noticed yourself? I think it becomes that way in my own life just because, first of all, you're doing a lot of podcasts, you're just busy. And you're also just looking for things to talk about. So stuff that's happening on a daily basis, you would say, well, that would be a good segment to sit down and try to pick that apart because there's lots of different facets to it. We're thinking about Michael Lewis recently because he has a book come out. He's getting bad press for the one of the first times in his career. Let me sit down with somebody and sort of pick that story apart. And then play for bigger fish, maybe, or a longer piece, I guess, at least in terms of writing. But that's just how it works out. I don't know if that's such a conscious strategy as like, I wake up today and what am I going to do? Specifically on that piece with Michael Lewis and the podcast you put out recently about it, would you try and formulate your thoughts in writing first, even if they're not published, that will help you when you go into the podcast to then kind of like articulate them in a way that they'll be proud of? Definitely. And I always think the best podcasting is heavily researched and thought about beforehand which then allows you to be spontaneous in the moment, maybe seem spontaneous if you have a lot of notes down on your list. I don't like it when people get on there and make huge speeches that they clearly have written out, but you can always tell when people have done the research and thought about it and let something percolate in their mind, because then it's a lot easier to be funny in the moment and still hit the marks you need to hit in terms of giving people a really interesting discussion or take on the news of the day. Yeah, there's an art in terms of rehearsing, but still sounding candid and then being able to react. Totally. It almost comes down to what makes it easier to be candid. What is the rehearsal required to be candid in podcasting? And it's a very subtle thing because I think we all listen to this stuff. And we're like, I like it when host number two says something really strange and just turns the conversation in a weird way. But a lot of times that comes from the fact that both people know everything they're supposed to be talking about. So you allow your co-host to do that. Yeah, there's a certain chemistry element, which feels like it's hard to teach. I am curious. There's a lot of people at The Ringer with writing backgrounds, but also those that transitioned into podcasting and seem to have developed chemistry with the people around them. Is there anything that consciously goes into that chemistry angle to these things, whether it comes to co-hosts or guests or anything along those lines? I think it's the single most important thing about a podcast, especially a double act where you have two hosts. Do I like the relationship between these people? In a lot of ways, that becomes more important than even the topic they're talking about on a daily basis. And it's funny, we have a few here at The Ringer, like Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald have known each other forever. David Shoemaker, my partner, and I have known each other since we were 14-year-old freshmen in high school. So in our case, we're certainly working on whatever it is our on-air relationship is, but it's really just a very, very long off-air relationship. And that I think manifests itself in interesting ways. And that's what I always hope people like about it. You want to have the right topics. You want to have the right takes. You want to be smart, all that stuff. But mostly you just want to have a relationship that people will come back to. And very tactically, how do you and Dan work together on a weekly basis? Are you sharing Google Docs with each other or are you calling each other? Do you work 
next to each other physically. We have been physically across the country for a while now, which makes everything incredibly challenging. So there's a lot of texts, there's a Google Doc, a lot of emails going back and forth with our producer too, just about, hey, this is interesting. Hey, this happens. And of course, you can start planning seven days in advance. And the way the news moves now, then of course, everything happens the morning that we're trying to record. So you wind up throwing it all out and being like, "Ah, never mind. Here's the lead now. And you've covered media now for well over a decade at the same time been partnered with someone in Bill Simmons that has been a big piece in how new media, whether we call it new media or not, I'll leave that to you, but how media has evolved. Have there been lessons both covering it and then being in the heart of it with Grantland and then The Ringer that you have really pulled away and that have stood out when you think about this last recent chapter here in your career from Grantland to The Ringer? Yeah, it's so fascinating for somebody who covers sports media to have worked at ESPN to have had this badge that not only got me onto the ESPN campus in the tiny number of times I was there, but to also get you into Disneyland for free whenever you wanted to go. Now I look back at that. And I'll tell you what's the most interesting part of it is that it was in retrospect, a golden age of ESPN. I mean, 2012 was, I believe the year that the cable bundle hit its highest mark. So they were just making so much money and they were doing so many different things. And I was a very, very, very tiny part of that. But I think we realized it in the time that it was this very special moment and that things were happening that, of course, I did not expect. I didn't expect to be working for ESPN. I didn't expect to be working for Bill. I didn't expect to have a job anywhere that cool in my life. In hindsight, it's just interesting to see what it was like for that whole company at that moment in time and a moment that has now ended, sadly, and I don't know will ever come back in quite the same way. I've seen you write somewhere that, and kind of to your point just now, the biggest advantage of working at ESPN was watching the big sports writers up close and personal do what they do. And you said in this quote that it was really valuable and helping you understand how media works writ large. I would love for you to expound on that if you remember saying it and it chimes with what you think now about what that taught you about media and then how you think media works. Like most things I said, I don't remember saying that. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, it was just organizationally really interesting because when you have a huge company like that, first of all, there's a lot of different silos. And then second of all, there's just a lot of people competing to make it in a company like that. You don't just show up and they tell you, okay, host Sports Center and go to this football game and hold a microphone on the sidelines. You're really fighting for your place in the company. I wasn't doing that particularly because for me, it was Grantland and about making my bosses happy. But there were certainly people that were looking for big, big careers there on television and stuff like that. And that's what it is. Talking to people even since then, it's just a very, very different atmosphere. I've always worked in very smallish places, even if we count Grantland as a smallish place within a big place. And it was never a thing of where, gosh, I'm in this giant corporation. How do I get people to even know that I exist here? But ESPN, it was always so fascinating to watch. Everybody was just fighting for their spot. And the people who were the most successful in a lot of cases were the people that fought the hardest. And that doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing, stabbing each other in the back behind the scenes or anything like that. It's just they were working and working constantly just to be seen and for their place. And when you think about where we are today, I think you paid proper homage to the cable bundle, which is one of the more beautiful economic things that ever was created for any business and ESPN being big beneficiaries of that. But now when you think about the ringer being paired up with Spotify and even having something like Barstool and Penn while the marriage didn't last forever was another form where it wasn't small media company being absolved into a larger media company, but smaller media company being absolved into something that's somewhat tangentially related in terms of product. Do you think that is 
the future for a lot of this stuff? Or do you think we're just adjusting to what the new norm is with sports media and big networks? I'm just wondering, do we get a big tail of these small players or do they get gobbled up again just by a completely different consolidation of big corporates? It's a fascinating question because I think actually both things are happening at the same time. This is the age of newspapers, especially, but lots of media companies going out and saying, where can we find safe harbor? Because the old way of making money isn't working anymore. Washington Post this week just announcing a bunch of layoffs, right? Their whole strategy had been to sell themselves to somebody who had tons of money so that they would be insulated somewhat from all the problems that media organizations are going through. But then at the same time, it's also the age of Substack and people that don't need anything to succeed. I'm always just amazed when I go on Twitter and read stuff, just like how many people now are working for themselves and are just completely pieced out of the whole media game in the way that it used to be played. So I guess the answer to that question is that both things are happening at the same time. And I don't exactly know which side I would bet on more because there are upsides to both, right? There are some media organizations out there, again, I go back to newspapers, but You don't understand what the future is going to be unless there is a big company or a rich patron waiting for it. But at the same time, then you see more and more talent go and work on their own, essentially become free agents. I just think that is such a fascinating dynamic that's happening right now. And from a personal perspective, how has it felt? You you talked about having worked broadly for small organizations, obviously within ESPN to begin with, then The Ringer was a startup to begin with, and now is within Spotify. First, I guess I'm curious for how independent the ringer feels within spotify at the moment and then more broadly how the transition has felt joining spotify i mean all i can talk about is myself and i would just say that for me the transition has been fantastic because i've just been doing what i was doing before and i just feel it's been awesome i've enjoyed the comforts of working for a big company or there's a lot of cool parts of that but really my podcast is what my podcast was my writing's what my writing was and to me that's been the awesomest part of it is that it's been very very easy And in terms of access, that seems like something that's also the doors have been broken down now in terms of who can have access to who. There is still some element with the sports rights, and that's a whole can of worms, but maybe Washington and politics is a better example of who can get access just writing on a Substack versus not. And I wonder, what do you think in terms of the talent going to places like the large organizations, seeing someone like Pat McAfee go to ESPN was kind of a surprise because it felt like a reversal of the trend where everyone was going smaller. Do you think that could be the start of something new or do you think that's one off? It's interesting because McAfee, when he made that move, said, I want the power of the cable bundle, which we're laughing at. But he's like, look, I found all these people from YouTube. And what I want now is the fire hose that still is linear television, at least as long as we have something called linear television. I think you are going to see a bigger trend of that because now you have these bigger media companies that say, why are people reading us? What is necessary about us? I mean, that's what everybody, I think, in media asks themselves all the time, right? You could assume things 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We're the newspaper. Of course, people are going to read us. We're the radio station. Of course, people are going to listen. And now you have to justify yourself every day. One way to answer that question is we're going to go get the super popular independent operator and put it behind our paywall or in ESPN's case, right? Put him on linear television and hope that his audience follows him there and hope that the audience also accepts him as part of a mainstream media organization instead of as a pirate ship. I think that you will see that happening more and more for sure. And this is somewhat of a leading question, but I also wondered, my entire list of questions have been leading questions. I shouldn't isolate this one. With ESPN's mindset there, is there any angle to 
hedging themselves and capturing an existing streaming audience in the sense that if they want to lean more into streaming as the cable bundle goes away, they now have McAfee who can be a funnel for what else might exist in streaming. Is that in any way an angle there? Totally. Because I think the scary part about streaming for ESPN and really any cable channel is what happens to our entire day worth of programming? Do people still watch it? Because all this stuff makes sense in linear television. Okay, we need to get from 11 o'clock to noon, get from noon to one, and therefore we have this show. But what if you go into a streaming universe and be like, I don't care about that anymore. That makes sense to me in linear television when I can just turn on ESPN. But if I don't turn on ESPN in the same way, do I want that to get me from point A to point B? So anything like McAfee, that's yes, that is a destination from this hour to this hour. That is I'm watching that or listening to it. However, I'm consuming that. Absolutely. Yes. And I didn't ask that question to make myself sound smart. I asked it because I'm curious what the next step would look like. And I have no idea what that next step is because you have the McAfee deal. Then what would be the next indicators that it's happening or the next natural evolution of this? Is there anything that you're monitoring in that category that keeps you up to speed in terms of as this shift to streaming could happen, particularly for the large players? These are the signposts. It's a really good question. I mean, I think Sports is such a weird one, right? Because we spend so much time thinking about Max, Amazon Prime, and things like that. Whereas ESPN has, on the one hand, tons of sports rights, which we know are something that people will follow wherever they are, right? Amazon's numbers have been really good this year. There's a live game, especially a live NFL game. We will go to wherever the live game is. So ESPN has that advantage. But the problem they have is what about everything else? What else gets you there? There is no Stranger Things on ESPN. (laughs) There is no White Lotus. So I don't think they've answered that question yet. They may think they are going to eventually have an answer to it. But to me, it's when are they putting things on streaming that people will want to consume on streaming? It doesn't even have to be just a streaming original product. It can just be something that even is still on linear television. But what is the thing that people are going to go there for as a destination that is not a really expensive football game? cost a ton to buy the rights to and then produce. And if we draw the line about talent more broadly, The Ringer in particular and Bill Simmons, very well known for nurturing talent and then developing them. What have you learned just about podcasting talent specifically in terms of either recognizing it or developing it was the sort of the key attributes that you might look out for? Well, it's funny because so many of us, present company included, are writers who transition to becoming podcasters. And all of a sudden, you're back to your 22-year-old days in your writing career where you're sitting there being like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to write a story. Is this story going to be as great as I want it to be? But will this be in English? Will this have paragraphs and sentences? And I felt like when I started podcasting, it was almost like that. At first, you're just so out of water. And of course, every journalist likes to talk and every journalist that I have ever met likes to blab on and on about their opinions about things. But it just requires you to do a new skill. So it's funny. You and I could walk around a media company's office and point at people and be like, that's going to be a good podcast or that's going to be a good podcast. But until you get them on there, sometimes you really don't know. And sometimes it's subtle things. It's not just being funny and being smart and having interesting opinions about things. Can you really handle the medium in an interesting way? Are you willing to learn about the medium? Because that's another thing too. I mean, I always just catch myself doing this thing, which I just absolutely hate in podcasts. And by the way, I'm doing it right now. So just forgive me. Where it's like an exchange of monologues. One person will have like a four minute monologue. And then the other person has a three minute monologue that doesn't really respond to the other monologue. I'm like, am I watching an NFL pregame show here? And you guys just talk like normal people talk. I'll shut up now because I'm doing that thing that I hate so much. 
you are answering the questions. You are talking with us, not at us, even though we might be doing a little bit of that with our questions, I think. I am always curious about the medium relative to radio. There are certainly differences, but there are a lot of similarities. And I just wonder over time how much the two models converge on themselves. Do you have a strong opinion on that? So it's such a fascinating question to me because podcasting spoiled people in a lot of ways. You don't have commercials quite as often. You don't have, at least in sports radio, tickers every 20 minutes telling you the scores that were exactly the same as they were 20 minutes ago. You are just cutting away a lot of the stuff you have to do and just, at least in the best instances, getting right to the interesting conversation. But I always think that us in the podcasting world have a lot more we should learn from daily radio. And I know whenever I am feeling adrift in the sea of podcasting, I just turn on my favorite sports radio station and just listen to what those guys do. Listen to how they come into segments. Listen to how they talk about things. Listen to how they take a seemingly obvious thing into a less than obvious direction. You're like, oh, that's how you do it. That's what it's like. Because podcasting has this air of, oh, yeah, it's the future. All the cool kids hang out here. But I'm like, dude, those guys, mostly guys, gals too, know about how to do this. There's something about having that just audio talent of having a conversation, of monologuing a little bit, of doing all that stuff. I always think that we have more to learn from them, perhaps, than they do from us. We had Spike Eskin on Legacy of Sports Radio. And I just think it's fascinating because he runs WFAN. But at the same time, he's built this tiny little 76ers podcast into somewhat of a national podcast. And it's very clear to me, it's from a lot of the tactics that he was able to implement and pick up. And he respects the podcast medium. But at the same time, there are so many things that he pulls out. And I'm always amazed by it. The thing about radio that always amazes me is that people do it from a certain time to a certain time every single day. There is a clock punching aspect to that that is just totally different from what we do. In some ways, I will say that's been something that's adjusted for me where Bill and Sal are my Monday morning coffee now, where it's just become part of my routine and then it changes once the football season ends. But when I don't have it, I'm like, ah, something is off about the morning. And that used to be the Boomer and his various co-hosts for a couple decades now. But it is funny. It's very much a part of the routine and it's appointment listening, which is actually another interesting dynamic with the shift towards on-demand versus whether it's streaming live or just live in general. There is something that gets missed from everything else away from sports moving towards the binge watch. And you don't get to have these water cooler. We get to react to this all together because I might watch four episodes at once. Somebody else might watch one episode and you never get that national attention. And I know several people have spoken out. This is not a great model. We should go back to releasing the Sunday night HBO special. Do you have a view in terms of where that goes or whether it's actually advantageous for the companies to go back into appointment viewing if they can? It's certainly when you have something like Succession or Game of Thrones, when those huge shows and like every major sporting event, it's awesome. It is awesome to be watching that almost in the same second that everybody else is watching that. I think as podcasters, we are now searching for the water cooler all the time. We are constantly trying to find that thing that everybody's talking about. And sometimes I think that makes us reach for things and try to turn them into an event. You're like, hey, really? Is this the national event that we think it is? But it's funny that as people who talk about this stuff, you're always trying to find it and failing that recreate the water cooler moment. Talking about the things that podcasters have all herded into is video. I'm very curious for your take on 
just how you feel about video and podcasting together and whether they are a fit or whether they are maybe not the thing that everyone has said they are. I've often said that I have a face made for radio and a voice made for print. So I'm a two X's on that scale. It's funny, every time I have a guest on, and I forgot to actually ask you guys this, they're always like, is this going to be video too? And when you tell them no, in our case, it's just this massive amount of relief. Like, thank God, I don't have to look good for you guys. I talk to a lot of television people, so they are worried about how they look in any public setting. I like it when I run across it. I think it's very revealing. And I think sometimes that's what makes me a little freaked out about it because I'm like, what does my face look like second to second when I'm listening to something? Especially if it's something that I disagree with. I mean, if you're just laughing and chopping it up, okay, well, then that's fine. Sometimes I think monitoring how you look, how you react to things, just feels like a totally different skill that at least at the moment I am not having to practice on a weekly basis. Let me reassure you that this won't be a video podcast. But you're right. It's not your face when you're talking. It's your face when you're listening. And most of the time, you don't even think about what you look like when you're just there absorbing information. Don't you love it on ESPN when those guys have listening face? They purse their lips when they do that little head nod. Stephen A is probably the master at it. I think I asked Pablo Torre about this one time about listening face. You're in a box. Whenever we're doing a Zoom on the press box, I find the same thing because my partner will be talking. I'll just steal a look at myself and be like, is my listening face okay? Am I giving him the cues he needs? It's actually a great example of something I hadn't thought about, but proves why Stephen A is Stephen A. You see the clips get broken out of Chris Russo going on his wild what he's going to do that Saturday. And they have Stephen A there and he knows he's going to get watched in terms of his reaction. He's reacting as you would want him to react. You're out of your mind. And he's got this disbelief. And that's like a whole nother level of entertainment. I don't even know what to call it, but talent, I guess I would say that I wouldn't even think about. And you find yourself watching him watch Russo, which think about that. You're watching somebody listen to somebody else. I'm not sure we ever thought we'd get there on TV, but here we are. This might be more of a taboo topic, but people's voices, particularly for podcasting, it's always fascinated me because there are certain people I just can't listen to purely because of what they sound like. And that's not something that we generally can change. So I'm wondering whether that is a valid thing to think or it's more of a me problem. It's an audio medium, right? So I'm not sure that any of us can do anything about it if our voice is bad. I always think to the early point about radio, one thing I do like about podcasting is I like people who sound like they're actually talking and not talking in the way they think radio people should sound like or TV people should sound like. And that's when you ask about what pressure have the industries put on each other, how have they informed each other? I think that's part of it because I grew up in the era of radio guy and TV guy who was talking in a very pleasing kind of way. And I think the fact that podcasting is a little more shaggy has put an end to a lot of that. Thank goodness. You need the deepness of Rosillo, but also the, it's not that he's informal, but he talks like a real person talks, but he has the deepness that you would want from your radio person. That's what it is, right? Vocal quality plus informality. That's what I wake up going for every day. We hosted somebody who specializes in powerful speaking and I listened and I just thought to myself, you know what, this is just making me feel bad about myself because he's talking about all the things that I do, vocal burn and whatnot. So it is certainly tricky. Thinking a little bit about your work, one of the things that we've loved, I think we both agree it was our favorite podcast episode that we've heard in the past year, your episode with Wright Thompson. One Perfect Story, which we could go on. I think we did talk for 45 minutes on this exact podcast about just that episode. So you're getting some major coverage of major coverage of coverage. Can you talk a little bit about going into that and the format for what you're doing there in terms of One Perfect Story, how it's 
evolved with time, the reception, almost as if it were a project. Can you just talk a little bit about it? Because I think it's something that we don't talk about podcast projects that much and how unique they are in the same way that we would about a writing project or something else. But to me, it actually stands out in a very unique way. Those interviews come out of envy. I read a story that Wright Thompson wrote. I remember in 2013 sitting around and getting drunk with all my friends and being like, you know, some one of us should write a story about Michael Jordan and winter. I'm weirdly imitating Wright right now. And then watching him do it. And that story was just such a rocket when it came out. Oh my God. Not only did he do it, not only did he get Michael Jordan, but he did it so exquisitely and so well. I still think it's the best thing he's ever written. I start with envy. And then I start with the reporter's curiosity to think about how did that come together? How did you pull that off? And there are some obvious questions in there. How do you get in to see Michael Jordan? How much time was allotted for that? What did you do to get Michael Jordan out of, uh, had a great career, it was amazing, and into the really interesting place that Wright got him into? But I think another part of it that's so interesting is I've written a bunch of stories. And when you are the writer of a story, you have a very, almost a secret history with it. Because you know so many things about it that nobody reading it does, right? You know how it came together. You know the stuff your editor saved you from. You know the things that should have been in the story but weren't, either because you couldn't get them or you were too lazy to make one more call. There's just this whole hidden history of it. And whenever I talk to a journalist about it, some of it is exactly the obvious questions you think you'd ask somebody about a movie, something they did well. What was it like? Where'd you get the idea? All that stuff. But then to me, there's this just whole second part of it. And for Wright, part of that was this story was not in the best American sports writing the next year. How did you feel about that? And he was pissed off about it. I was like, of course you would be pissed off about it. I remember looking at that from afar and being like, what? This didn't make the cut? So yeah, I think that's where it comes from. And then just thinking about breaking it down, just like we'd break down a great movie or a great episode of The Sopranos or whatever it is. I just think that's just really, really fun to do with a writer. And a risk of going all one perfect podcast on you. How receptive was Wright to the idea initially and how much back and forth did you have with him ahead of the conversation? Extremely receptive. I think he wrote me back two minutes later and said, sounds great. Most people like to talk about their work, especially work like that, that they revisit. For a while, I feel we were in the long form anniversary phase of American culture. And some of that stuff has faded away a little bit. So whenever you remind somebody, by the way, that story came out 10 years ago next month. They're always like, it did? Amazing no pushback on trying to get people to do those. And there's almost like a poetic rhythm to that piece. So I've always wondered how edited it is. I say this as a great compliment whenever I read a piece now. Usually New York Magazine pieces feel like this to me the most of all. But they feel very edited. One of the things about writing for both good and ill on the internet is that sometimes it doesn't feel edited. Sometimes you're just like, what? This is going on a really long time. Or how many human eyes looked at this piece of writing before it actually went up? And so when you read something that feels edited, yes, there is a quality to it. I think it's actually an old school quality because magazines were inhibited in certain ways. They had less than you wanted a lot of the time, but the things that were in them felt very looked after and very manicured and just taken care of. And so, yes, I agree. And I think that piece does feel very edited. Though I think if I remember what Wright told me is that he wrote it really fast and then it largely ran. I'm sure there were some important edits on it, but it largely ran as he had written it. When you left that conversation, I think there was something just incredible at the conversation as well, because he's talking to Jordan, you're talking to him about 
talking to Jordan about greatness. And then you're closing the conversation talking about how Wright feels about his own career and whether he wants to be the best, whether that matters to him. And he gives this amazing response about why else would you do something if you're not going to try to be the best? And it was amazing. Did you know that going in that you're going to get that type of really honest, open feedback coming from Wright? That's one of those that me sitting there and looking at him from afar, I don't know him super well, exchanged emails over the years, that kind of thing. And I've met him a couple of times, but looking at him from afar, reading his public comments, seeing how he comported himself back when he had a Twitter account. He doesn't anymore. He's just on Instagram. I just looked at him. I was like, that's what that guy's trying to do. That is literally what that guy gets up thinking about every day. Not I'm going to write a great magazine piece, or I want to be a good writer. I want to be a great writer, which I think a lot of people have that thought, including myself, but I want to be the best, which is different for him. That's such an obvious thought, but I don't think a lot of people in this business, even really great people a lot of the time, I don't think they wake up thinking that explicitly. I don't, I really don't. And so, yeah, I was funny. That's me casting a fishing line into the water because I suspected that was the answer. For me, you always often get really good answers like that when you suspect something, when you feel it's true. And then of course you're smiling because they're confirming what you thought. How do you think about one perfect story segment of the press box now? I think you've done three. I'm in the market for more. It's one of those things where I don't want to overdo it because I feel sometimes you can run something into the ground. And I always want to make sure that people who are coming in who are not massive journalism nerds like myself are finding the podcast accessible and are just like, what the heck is this about? In fact, that's why I chose right partly because not only was it a great story, but it's about Michael Jordan. We all want to know more things about Michael Jordan. That's a very popular subject. So yeah, more on the way. I thought about a few more this year that I didn't wind up doing just because it didn't make sense timing wise. There was a Lawrence Wright piece he wrote about these accusations of Satan worship. It became his excellent book, Remembering Satan, but that was published like 30 years ago this year. So I almost reached out to him about that and didn't wind up doing it for whatever reason. But I think magazine pieces are fun to do because people can actually read the piece. I did that with a few authors about books too. I did it with John Krakauer about In the Wild, which is a really fun podcast. But then it's a big ask to be like, oh, by the way, please, if you haven't, go read this two or 300 page book. Magazine piece, if you're interested, you're going to get it done. Particularly because you said at the beginning, stop what you're doing, go and read that thing. I can't tell you how many people bring up the idea of the rewatchables, but the rereadables were mostly in the business category. And I'm like, it's a much bigger ask for your audience to read a book or even remember what you're referencing with a book. Totally is. I know. And I love books. I've got a big stack of unread ones right now. They still sell. People still read them. But in terms of like a podcast audience, you're really going to get people to plug into something like that. You have to think about the audience and who's consuming the podcast as well. We think about that from time to time. You mentioned the long form piece. What's your general view of where long form media, whether it's written pieces or even podcasts are a form of long form media? What's the future look like there? Well, there's a big, interesting, wide open field that we've now just seen people really start to explore with long form podcasting and telling stories in that way. I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of the ones, especially the ones we've done at The Ringer, I've been really, really happy with and envious of. I think it's often one that now we're in this weird thing where everything has to be X number of episodes. I see that a lot when I'm listening around the world to stuff. Now, it used to be that was kind of exciting. Now that's become a little daunting. It's the whole reading the whole book thing. I'm like, man, am I up for seven parts or 12 parts of this? Or am I up for one really good part of this? And that's probably a reflection of just how much stuff is out in the world now. Long form writing is interesting because I just don't think there's a big need for it. 
And when you see a really good piece, whether it's in the Atlantic or the Times or the Ringer, wherever it is, people do stop and read those things. I was reading a Stead Herndon on Kamala Harris this week just because I was like, oh, wow, I want to read this right now. Or piece in New York Magazine on Sham Sharania because I'm just like, I want to stop and read this and see what it is. It is to the water cooler point in our own little way. It has a way of getting people to all do the same thing. So, I mean, I still want to write it and I still want to read it. Absolutely. I think it's interesting on the internet because you just, things move fast. Things always move faster than magazines. This is not something that's new, but you just have to do it in such a way that it feels like it's worth your time. Even in the time where we were just celebrating long form as this huge brand and this, oh my God, long form, what a wonderful thing long form is. There were a lot of pieces that were just fine. They were just magazine pieces and really didn't have to be 3000 words. So I think if anything now, I hate the way the media world's changed that it's harder to do those things, but I think justifying the length of something is not necessarily a bad thing for the whole subgenre of journalism. Every trend gets taken too far as well. To your point, I think. I would love to know a bit about how you think about success with your podcast and your writing, whether you're metrics focused or you're more internally. Do I feel good about that? More internally focused, and that's a credit to the people at The Ringer who've always put quality first in those kind of things. I want it to be bigger. I certainly want the podcast to grow. I want to figure out ways for it to grow. We're always thinking about that, getting it out to more people, doing something so that it's an inviting place. We're always different, right? Because we're media. It's not quite the built-in, absolute, gigantic thing that maybe sports, movies, TV, or something like that is. So it's always a little bit different for us. When I was younger, if I wrote something that sucked, and a lot of people read it, I'd go, oh, well, well, hey, you know, it was popular. I would not think that now anymore. I'm much more worried about when I got done with that, whether it was a piece of writing or was a podcast, am I happy with that? Did I think that was good? Did I think that was what it should have been? And that's how I grade myself. How do you think about growth of the podcast in particular? Because the medium itself is so tied to the hosts of the podcast. The responsibility really tends to be on the host to grow it and to publicize it, etc. When you're working within a bigger organization, obviously, often, particularly with the newspaper, they would be flexing their muscles to get it in front of a wider audience. I wonder how that relationship works out the ringer. I'm not worried about the podcast getting lost. If David and I were doing it on our own, we'd just be like, hey, we exist. Come find us. That's always such a nice advantage and privilege to have. I do think the thing we worry about, I guess, day to day and week to week is just being timely and being on things. We have learned collectively that people want you to talk about certain things. They want to hear you. They want you to take them in interesting directions, but they want you to be there when big things happen. So when Rupert Murdoch retired the other day, it's like, we got to go, man. 15 minutes. I remember I was driving my son to school out here in LA and I was like, when I get back, we are hitting record. And probably not a wonderfully well-worked-out outline there, but we need to talk about this right now. And I think in terms of growth, that's always the way I think you do it. It's just timeliness, especially with big stories and things that are the genuine water cooler moment. You want to hear the people you like talk about that stuff. And those are the marks we try to hit. It feels like that exactly encapsulates where podcasts are very different from traditional media to me, where the Phillies won last night, and I immediately wanted to hear somebody that is a Phillies fan talking about it in audio form. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like that's the thing that I always want to attach to. And even though they can have a post-game show, it's just going to be very different from what I'm looking for. We try to focus all on timeless and go out of our way to avoid timely. It's becoming our detriment in many ways because there's so much else to consume. Yeah, we can put that off to the side and it just gathers dust. I felt that way the other night. Cowboys lost to the 49ers, just got crushed on Sunday night. And I was like, I need 30 minutes of bloodletting right now. 
I need somebody who's as upset as I am about what just happened. Because in a way, it is the post-game show, right? I don't want the network post-game show. I don't need Rodney Harrison. I need people like me who are pissed off and want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And they need to be here right now. I don't want to hear that in the morning. I will also want that, but I want to hear it right now. Misery loves company. Victory loves company. How have your own media consumption habits changed with all of the new things that are out there now, whether it's podcasts, YouTube, et cetera? Because you're slow plugged into the media, what do you actually consume day to day? It's weird how much you try to consume and how much you wind up not consuming. I have so many open tabs. I'm looking right now. That athletic story, am I going to read that? On a Friday, nonetheless. I know. That's where it really hits home. Funny, I actually tried to tack backwards and get more analog for a while. So we were here in LA and we were getting the Los Angeles Times every day and we're getting the New York Times every day because I was like, the world is so big that at least in terms of news news, I want this finite thing that I can hold in my hand. And even if I don't read every word of every article, I can scan the headlines, especially in very heavy news times and just understand what's going on. And that's helpful. And then leads me to the podcast. Well, guess what piled up on the floor day after day after day was newspapers. So I was like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> we're getting the Sunday and we're just going to call it a Sunday and everything else I'll read online. But you know, the biggest things that helped me, I think the things that organize my life the most are newsletters. And in my case, they're media newsletters that just have links and subjects and little write-ups. It allows me to do my job in a much, much more efficient way. I wouldn't be able to do it. I was just looking through one this morning when I woke up over coffee and I'm like, okay, here's this, here's the CNN stuff from this week. Here's this from this week. And even if I don't use it all or use any of it, it's just here's the stuff I need to read in one place. I don't know what I would do without that. That is the only way I can organize my life. Every six months, I decide that I'm going to read the newspaper. It lasts about a week. And then I try again, six, six months time. Poor newspapers. <laughs> I'm curious, you've worked with Bill Simmons for a really long time, and he's the OG of sports podcasting anyway. What would you define as his superpowers or the main things that you think about with regards to how he shaped your career and what you've learned from him? list of superpowers is pretty long because it just invented the vocabulary of podcasting, writing, sports writing on the internet. I mean, just I could go on and on. I always said the biggest thing with me, with my career, is that he always wanted me to be the best version of myself. I grew up in an age of media where you would go to, and I'm just making this up because I never wrote for him, but there never wrote for him much, but the New York Times Magazine. And the goal there would be can you write a New York Times magazine piece? Can you write a New Yorker piece? That was overwhelmingly the goal. And that's loosened up a lot as the internet's come in and things have changed. But with Bill, it was never like that. It was, can you write the best Brian Curtis story you can write? Can you do the best Brian Curtis podcast you can do? And that to me was just the biggest gift that I could have ever gotten. On the one hand, it doesn't mean they didn't want me to do the best job I could and to push me and to do all those things and say, do this, do this. There's a certain very high expectation, which I always really, really like. But it's the expectation was to be myself and to figure that out. And I look around and I see people that have worked with us, Zach Lowe over at ESPN and Kevin Clark now over there and at Omaha Productions, all these people, like they are themselves. They are exactly themselves. And Brian Phillips, still my colleague at The Ringer, all these people are very, very different, but they've all become... I think in a way, a very, very good or the best version of themselves, which is so cool. His own content is one thing, but there's a track record of developing talent, finding talent, personalities that whether they're still in the ring or now, or if they go elsewhere, I'm always surprised 
at how you fill in the bench when people leave and you develop these people and it's a whole new generation of them. There seems to be something there where he has the eye for it as well. Talking about the golden age of ESPN, Wesley Morris worked at Grantland. I mean, think about that. Wesley Morris worked for ESPN. He was our colleague. That is mind-blowing in retrospect. It brings me to the last question here. We'll go out with another big thematic one. You take someone like Bill, who was not a professional athlete. Then you look at other forms of media where you take something like the Fox booth and you have Greg Olson, who was a professional athlete, but he wasn't Tom Brady, who was a professional athlete and a peak. So there's these different versions of practitioners, people who have had experience in sports, a variety of different forms of that, and then people that are completely outside. If you're just thinking about the ideal media content, how are you pairing those things together? Where is the place for the athletes? Where is the place for the non-athletes? And how do you mix them? Well, as somebody who played 10 years in the National Football League, I think I have a very good uh, perspective on this question. So you might be biased, yeah. First of all, every sports writer that I've ever met is to some extent a frustrated athlete. This is the reason. The reason we are not playing for the Texas Rangers is we're not good enough to play for the Texas Rangers. And it's interesting you mentioned the stratum of Greg Olson or Chris Collinsworth on Sunday Night Football, right? Really good. The top 1% of everybody that played in the NFL, but not a Hall of Famer in Collinsworth's case, not a Super Bowl champion in either one of their cases, right? So they got so close and then still came in their own way to the media business with something to prove, with a second act that maybe they wanted to be better than the first act. I just think that's so interesting, right? Because we're talking about, to a certain extent, what drives you to be really good at this business. What is it you're trying to do? What is it you're trying to prove? I just remember that too. In high school, all these guys who were starters on the varsity teams and their careers were ending. I was working for the newspaper and I was like, oh, wow, I'm just getting started here. See, guys, that was a very strange moment because needless to say, they were much more popular than I was at school. To your other question about the expertise and the person that's been in it, I think in a way those categories have collapsed a lot more because you see somebody, I mentioned Collinsworth, I want to understand advanced stats. I want to own a company that thinks about these things. I want to collapse the difference between somebody like us and somebody like him. And that to me is very different because I grew up in a world where it was like, you're the old jock on TV. I know how the game's played and all that stuff. And I think now to what's required of everybody is more expertise, right? I could say the same thing about football writers, right? Now they're breaking down tape which is the thing that players and coaches used to only do, thanks to all 22. They know more about scheme than they've ever known in the history of sports writing. In a way, it's become one profession, and the notes of expertise are still valued, and they're still cool, and they still make like Troy Aikman making a point on Monday Night Football different than a point somebody at our shop would make. But I think it's closer than it's ever been before. It's a really interesting point you made, too, on the desire to do more and the ambition that someone who maybe was not the superstar of superstars. I've always thought about it through the lens of coaching. And you take someone like Steve Kerr, who was not Michael Jordan, but knows the angles. You see a lot of backup point guards end up being head coaches. And I think they have to understand what everybody else on the floor is doing. But there's a whole nother angle to it, which you brought up there in terms of ambition and desire to achieve more after the fact and a willingness to put in the work, which I probably have underestimated. So. A lot of good lessons throughout this conversation that you've enlightened us for. So between your content that you produce and joining us here today, we've learned a lot from you and we really appreciate everything you do. Thank you so much for having me on. This was an awesome discussion. 
Really appreciate it. Dom, I've got a confession to make. It is challenging to do an interview with somebody that you know asks very concise, tight questions. And then you catch yourself rambling within a question and you just ramble and ramble and ramble. I don't think I've ever quite had the word salad experience that I had with that particular conversation with Brian right there. It's funny because I'm feeling very self-conscious as well at the end of this recording. I feel like I did a terrible job when you actually did quite a good job. So I'm worrying about myself over here. It didn't feel like it came across from your side. Funny how that works. We're all in our own heads sometimes, but it was an enjoyable conversation, even if it took a little bit to get the words out of our mouth. I think that he's got a lot of timeless wisdom when it comes to media things. We probably tried to push him in terms of the ringer and some of his experiences there, which naturally he only spoke for himself in most cases. I do like how you continue to press on to that. But he's a special one when it comes to what he's doing over there and the vantage point that he has. So I did enjoy the conversation throughout. Yeah, I found it immensely fun. I think I'll ever forget the moment halfway through where he's like, I hate these monologues where people just speak for three minutes each. I was like, you've literally described every podcast that Colossus has ever produced. And I don't know how to come back from this while we're talking. So I'm just going to keep going because I'll get myself in a real pickle if I try and adapt to this on the fly. I agree with everything you just said. And the thing I really want to ask you is how do I get the editor at large job at Colossus? Because that sounds like the absolute best job in the whole world. Oh, yeah. It's an awesome title. You need to have the experience and the respect and credibility that Brian has. That's one thing that will help. But 10 years from now, it might be in play. I think when you look at who he brings in and the conversations that he has, it tends to be a little bit more focused on sports media. But it is so much of what we try to do with our favorite conversations, which is getting the weeds for someone where you want to talk to Jim Nance about how he's preparing for the final day at the Masters. And he actually gives you a lot of really interesting information and stories. And you do that across a number of different broadcasters or people that just operate in that system. And it's pretty neat. We have a lot of well-professed love for Brian and his show on this particular show. He said he's got a voice for text, which I completely disagree with. I think his voice is perfect for podcasting. His intros in particular are fabulous. The overarching thing for me from this whole conversation is how much preparation and rehearsal are important to podcasting. That's really what makes everything feel natural and authentic. Sometimes you can look at this new media that we've talked about in the conversation and assume it's all just authentic and off the cuff and don't want to do any preparation. That is the wrong takeaway. The takeaway should be, yeah, you want to keep it informal, but you need to do your research and like really get tight on the points that you want to bring across, whether that's doing something in video or podcasting in particular. You have to do the work up front. We talked to Neil at No Laying Up. They have what you might think is the most off-the-cuff conversations about golf. The reality is they spend all week putting together the notes for their conversation on a Sunday night to recap the week of golf. And you look at any great podcast out there and you'll find a very similar thing where people are incredibly diligent about making sure everyone on that podcast knows what they're going to be talking about. I think that's right. And I actually think that you can see when podcasts aren't working with specific hosts or guests, those people will get booted because they haven't prepared. There's very few people who can just go fully off the cuff. It's part of a broader point, which I think you were tapping into there. Tim Ferriss mentioned this very recently, that there's a great TED Talk. I believe it's a TED Talk with Ethan Hawke, where everything that he's saying feels like it's off the cuff and natural. But once you've operated in this space for long enough, you know that it is highly rehearsed, intending to be natural. And it's hard to explain this because it's not such that it's so polished in a way where 
it's going to feel like old, stodgy, uptight. It's just merely practiced and crafted in a way where it still feels real. It still is real. It's authentic, but it comes across in a very disarming way. So I think that really taps into that. How do you do the preparation so that it feels very natural in the moment? I think writing plays into that a lot too. And I think that's why with The Ringer and a lot of the success that they have with people on their podcasts, a lot of them were previously writers or are writers still. And that just helps you have clarity of thought that you can spit so smoothly when it comes to a live conversation. It's such a skill as well to take something rehearsed and then make it feel informal. You've told me this about my intros in the past. They feel scripted, whether that's for business breakdowns or making media. And it's really hard. That won't have been take one. That would have been like take eight that I ended up releasing. And it's getting out of your own head, but having done the prep and the time. like, And then just coming down, and Brian's been doing this for years, getting a formula that works for you. It might not be writing out a whole page of notes for yourself. It might be bullet points, or it might be that you want the full shebang. So then you can take the pieces of it when you get into the recording studio. That stuff, I think, just comes through time. I don't think many people are born with that innate skill. You just have to develop it for yourself. There's some telltale signs that people are reading or overly rehearsed things. And it's when you hear things like therefore or yet words that you just never use unless you're writing or trying to craft a speech, which you're probably better off just scrapping those words unless you're a very, very, very specific type of person. One other theme that he talked about, which I often ask myself is, would there be a benefit to covering more stuff in the moment? And take this show specifically. I look back at the Barstool Pen stuff, and I think we probably could have had a pretty thoughtful 20-minute conversation immediately after it came out. Now, it's playing a different game, but... Do you think that there's an opportunity to lean more into that stuff? Yes, the opportunity is definitely there. Thought about it from Colossus more broadly. We could, I would hesitate to say should, have a daily investing podcast. That could be 15 to 30 minutes where we ring up people that have been on across our podcast and see what they're thinking about in terms of the market. There would be a huge demand for something like that. I think this is good. We can do it. Maybe we introduce video. And then we can put it on TV and call it like CNBC or something. Would that make sense? I think that would be the risk that it would disintegrate into something like that. There would be a space for a really thoughtful, still trying to take a long-term view, but talking to people on a daily basis. If you talk to like 365 almost, or at least 300 managers every year, ask them in the morning what they're thinking about. If they take a long-term approach, then maybe you could get an interesting 15, 20-minute conversation out of them. There's obviously a few components here. One is that people want to listen to stuff that's timely. The quality can be a little bit worse because you're just trying to get immediate reactions to whatever has happened. But also you're trying to play into the algo by getting daily reps and daily numbers. I have a slightly different view on the daily thing. I think if you're going to go daily, you need to go early morning. It's out. It's the first thing you listen to. It's very, very tight. And rather than having people come on and talk to you, you almost just cover it yourself. Or go with like a Ben Thompson where you have someone reading the headline for you. So it's a difference in voices. I think you're talking about the McAfee thing, the 11 to 1 spot of business investing stuff, which you could also listen to after. This is hilarious because I'm just about getting to the spot at which I need to go and find out who Pat McAfee is. And that's probably heresy to admit, but he keeps getting brought out and I do know who he is. I don't have too much of knowledge about what he does. It's come up too many times for me to be this ignorant. Yeah, I definitely led Brian with that question about ESPN buying that as a hedge. But I think it's probably the most interesting potential 
market move from some of these bigger cable players. Okay, cable bundle breaks up. What is next opportunity? Well, if you have a huge streaming audience already and they want to hedge that cable bundle to streaming, go buy the streaming audience that exists because it might not have much overlap with your existing audience. I think people could be really well positioned if they're in that market with the big audience and they could get gobbled up. So that's how I was thinking about it. But I definitely led him to just agree with what I was saying. I seem to agree with you. It's funny. Sometimes you can just look at the whole world through everything is cyclical. So of this stuff, I'm just like, yeah, everything will come back together. Then it will get disintermediated again and then it'll come back, which is obviously not a very clever thing to think. But sometimes that's my mindset. Maybe if we make an effort to do a bit more timely stuff, even if it's just gathering information and reporting on it together, I think that is an interesting opportunity. The biggest barrier for me is what can I add to the discourse that people will find interesting? I have that imposter syndrome over there. Surely there's nothing that I can add to the conversation that is vaguely interesting. That is doing other people a disservice more than it is myself, I think, because it might be true, but you haven't tried it yet. So you should probably try it before you start saying stuff like that. You would be surprised at how many people do not want to spend the time finding the information in various outlets. So just curating the information, gathering it. And if 80% of it is just regurgitating what is out there from various outlets and basically packaging it down, and then 20% some differentiated viewpoint or slightly different analysis opinion, you don't want to get into talking headspace. But I think with some of this stuff, there is an opportunity to just deliver the message in terms of what's happening. And people oftentimes want to hear multiple opinions on what's going on, what's seen, different angles. So I don't know. I think that fills a need. Now, it's not going to be for everyone, but that's something definitely worth trying and something we should do. You forget that very few people thinking about exactly the same things as you every single day, whether that's in this small part of media. And so you probably do have information advantage, at least, even if it's not an analytical advantage. I agree with that. And there was so many parallels between this conversation and the one you had with Spike earlier in the year, just about chemistry between podcast hosts and the things that make great podcasting. I thought his point of we have a lot to learn from radio is such a good point. Sometimes this industry and other new industries, they they end up spending a lot of time saying how wonderful and innovative they are. But then people that have been doing it for years and literally fill all day on the airwaves, they are a lot more talented than us mere podcasters. It is silly to not look at the parallels and try to figure out some ways that you can pick up different tactics from them. I completely agree with you. So that was fun. Had an excellent time. If you don't listen to Brian, we have already talked and charmed him enough and hyped him up enough. But big fans of what he does over there and excited to get more people on in that space and learn from some of the others that have been doing this for a while. So an excellent conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Hey, enjoyed it. See you next week. See you next week.